What a day. Obviously, it's, it's Valentine's Day, and some of you are like, well, I, di- I didn't even know that. Well, you know it now. And I want to take uh, our time that we have this morning and talk to you along that subject. And some of you are saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not even married yet. And I realize that. Uh, some of you, uh, marriage may be a part of your life in the future. At least you would like for that to be a reality. But you're not yet married. You've never been married. And you're like, hey, it's just going to be helpful. And I'm, I'm telling you, friends, if you will hang in here with me, even if you're not married, this can be so incredibly helpful to you at some point in the future. And you don't want to check out. You want to stay fully engaged. Others of you, you're currently married. And the reality is, uh, among uh, you know the different ones that are represented here, different families, marriages, and so on, uh, some of you, your marriage is doing really well. It's not perfect because no marriage is perfect, but it's healthy. You'd say it's good. You might would even say it is better than it has ever been before. But the reality is there's many of you that you'd say, well, that's, that's certainly not descriptive of my marriage because my marriage is going through a tough time. Or you might would say my marriage is real trouble. In fact, you might would say my marriage is in such trouble that it's very worrisome to me. I think about it all of the time. And I'm just saying to you, no matter... Where your marriage is, like incredibly healthy, are going through the most uh, tremendous challenges your marriage has ever gone through, you just need to stay dialed in this morning. Others of you, like my parents, you were married and then you went through a divorce and it's like, you're, you know, I don't know if I'll ever be married again. I don't know if I ever want to be married again. And for you, I'm just saying to you as well, don't, don't check out because you never know the future. You never, never know what God may have in store for you. And I just want you to hang in here with me. I want you to listen. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, how to avoid a miserable marriage. How do you avoid your, your life, your relationship just going into a state of, of misery? Uh, a lot of couples, even if the relationship is relatively healthy, know what it's like to from time to time. Things, you know, well, what's the use? Why do I keep, you know, working so hard? There does not seem uh, to be any cost benefit to the investment that I'm making in. You know, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to be sensitive to uh, my spouse's needs. I'm, I'm trying uh, all, but it doesn't seem that things are getting... What's the use? Why well, keep trying? Uh, is it always going to be this difficult? Will I always have to work this hard? Should I just, should I just give up and, and quit? You know, should I just stop? Uh, marriage is not, not easy. It's hard work. It's hard work. We'll talk about that. All relationships, really that are worth their salt are hard work because you've got to work to preserve them. It's not, not easy. And something that some of you need to hear, it may be the only thing that will really stay in your brain once we're done, and this may be all you needed to hear today, is that if your marriage is right now in a great challenge, it does not mean that you're in a bad marriage. It does not. A lot of times people, I see it especially in younger couples from time to time, although it is true in older couples as well, uh, but younger couples aren't as experiencing this, and so things aren't going really well, not as good as they hoped that they would, and they're like, well, uh, apparently this is a bad marriage, and, and that, is, that is not true. It may be that you're just having to adjust through some things, and we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit. Marriage will take work. It's a lot of work. And uh, a story um, I heard a number of years ago, I didn't even need to bring it because it just, this is typically how I will use the story. If I read it, and it causes me to laugh out loud, then I'll use it. If I don't laugh out loud, I'll just discard it. And uh, I love this story. 
It was about a bride on her big wedding day, and she was so excited as any bride would be, and she well know if you've ever been married, that day for a bride, it's a long, long day getting prepared for a very, very special moment. And so she was giddy. She was optimistic. This is her big wedding day, and, you know, friends in the wedding party are buzzing around, family and such, and so she's just so happy. Well, a couple of hours later, her mother walked back into the room, and she's just crying, and it just is shocking to her mom, and her mom her mom says to her, what is wrong, baby? This is, this is your wedding day. You're the bride of this great day. You've been so happy. What's going on? What happened? What went wrong? And she said, you're never going to believe this. And she said and called her husband-to-be's uh, name and said, you're never going to believe this. I never knew this about him, but I found out just a few moments ago. He does not believe like I believe. She said, really? What does he not believe? She said, he does not believe in hell. And she says, your husband-to-be does not believe in No, Mom, we don't believe. I always thought that he did. But he does not believe in hell. And then she paused and waited for the wisdom of her mother. And her mother responded with great wisdom. Mother looked at her and said, go ahead and, go ahead and marry Tim. We'll show him what hell's like. <laughs> and we'll make a believer out of him. And some of you may feel like, oh, you know, uh, it's so challenging right now. It feels a little bit like that. But, you know, a lot of times, my observation has been that a lot of times couples uh, marry into a relationship and, to be quite honest, come in with what I might would call unrealistic expectations. I, I see this. You know, one of the things when a couple's going to get married, a couple of things got to happen. If they're like, hey, would you consider performing our ceremony? And I said, well, a couple of things we need to check on. Let's check on and make sure that I'm available on that particular date. We checked that out. And I said, now, this is the way it works. If I'm going to be a part of your ceremony, you're going to have to go through premarital counseling with a professional marriage counseling, uh, counselor. And they go through five sessions. We've got a couple of great counselors right here in the Lakeland area that we work with. And, and I just say, you got to do that. If you do that, dates, hey, I'd, I'd love to be a part of that with you. And they, but I see, the, I see the enthusiasm, I see the excitement. It's like, oh, man, I can't wait to get married. It's been so perfect now. It's going to be so perfect once we get married. And then they're about six months into it, and it's not nearly as perfect as they thought that it would be because now realism begins to settle in, and a lot of times unrealistic expectations begin to service. See, a lot of times couples go into marriage and they think, well, you know, I, my marriage is going to be different. I see what goes on among my friends and I, I see what happens in the marriages of some of my, my family members, but our marriage will be different. We're never going to have any serious conflict. There's not going to be these strong differences in opinion. Our relationship is going to be different than everybody else's. It is going to be like perpetual peace, common agreement, unending unity on every single thing. And then legitimate challenges emerge, and one or both parties begin to overreact. And again, they may feel like, hey, you know, this is not what I, this is a bad marriage. I'm, I'm in a bad marriage, and it is not necessarily a bad marriage at all. And the reality is, marriage is just challenging at times because here's what you do. You take two people that are most likely very, very different, and they come together, two separate individuals with varying temperaments and backgrounds and needs, and brought together in what is one of the most intimate or is the most intimate of all human relationships. And as a result of that, you know, you know this, any relationship that is worth anything, is, it, takes, it takes a lot of hard work with a friend. 
with a friend. You, if you really value the friendship, you know that it doesn't always, everything is not perfect in the friendship. And you got to work at it if you want to have a really good friendship. And if, if you want to have a really good relationship with, say, your boss at work, or if you're the boss, the employees, it's not always easy. And you got to work really, really hard to maintain good relationships. And these are just people that we're not around all the time. And then you take people and you bring them out of their two different backgrounds and you put them together like all of the time, again, in the most intimate of all relationships. And then you just think it's always going to be perfect. It's always going to be easy. It's always going to be unity on everything. We're never going to argue, never conflict. Again, that's just not being realistic because a certain measure of discord is inevitable. But again, it doesn't mean that you've got a bad marriage. There's some uh, statements that I'd like for you to look at on the screen by some Christian counselors. This is from Scott Stanley. You'll see it here. He writes, relationships, especially close relationships, are difficult. In fact, it seems that our relationships with those we love most are the very hardest relationships of all to keep on track. And that's so true. Look at what John Orberg writes. Some of you, I know what you're thinking. Well, he's not, he's not a Christian counselor. He's, he's a pastor. He's a writer. He actually has his Ph.D. in clinical psychology, and he says this, the litmus test of spirituality is not the absence of conflict. Conflict will not disappear until when? Until we die. The litmus test is how we handle it. Conflict is inevitable. Resentment is optional. Then Emerson Egrich writes this, Conflict is not a sign you have a bad marriage. Even secular research showed that the best marriage relationships have some conflict. The difference, and I think this is very important, the difference between successful couples and unsuccessful, unsuccessful couples is that the successful ones keep getting up and keep dealing with the issues. Unsuccessful couples want it easy. They want it now. They want their needs to be met. They don't want conflict. They just want to be, quote, happy. This approach, Egret says, is the epitome of immaturity. So here's what I want to do, and I want everybody, whether you've never been married before, and that may be in your future, you've been married, and you're not sure if you'll ever marry again, you know, based on how difficult the divorce that you went through, or you're married now. I, I want to talk to you about how do you avoid I'm not talking to you about how to have a perfect marriage because there are none. I don't know of any. But how do you avoid a miserable marriage? How do you have a good marriage, a healthy marriage? Now, any time that you deal with a subject that is as broad and complex as marriages, then there's many options that you can actuate. So what I want to do is I just want to take one verse out of the New Testament and uh, I'm going to show it to you. You're going to see it on the screen. In fact, I'll ask you to read it with me. And then we're going to talk, and I'm going to talk it out for the next few moments. And we're going to learn to, together some things that can be very, very helpful to our current marriage or the marriage if you're looking to the future to be married, how helpful that that would be. All right, so let's get going. Ephesians 5, 33, here it is on the screen. Each one of you, let's all read it together, 100%, everybody now. Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, now look at that, and you've got to say, why would, the, why would the Bible utilize such strong language in regards to this? To husbands, it is clear. You saw it. To husbands, the Bible says, you must love your wife. That's what it says. Strong language. You must. It's not like, hey, you must love your wife. And then it flips to the other side, and the Bible writer says, and as a wife... You must respect your husband. 
Now, is that accidental? Is that just language? Is that just jargon? Is that just something there? No, it is very, very intentional. And I'm going to tell you why in the next couple of moments. People who are much smarter than I am and have actually spent significant uh, portions of their life researching these matters tell us this, that men, and I'm quoting here, that men are commanded to love, that they are commanded to love because they don't necessarily love naturally and that women are commanded to respect because they don't necessarily respect naturally. And I believe that as we merge into this a little bit more, it's going to become increasingly clear to you as to what is meant here. I want to just take a moment and read a paragraph from a book that actually quotes, for those of you that have studied marriage or relationships, this is a name that uh, is quite um, influential in relationship circles. It's a guy by the name of Dr. John Gottman. And let me just read one paragraph. Interestingly enough, scientific research confirms that, here they are, that love and respect are the foundation of a successful marriage. Dr. John Gottman, professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington, led a research team that spent 20 years, listen, 20 years studying 2,000 couples who had been married 20 to 40 years to the same partner. These people came from diverse backgrounds, and had widely different occupations and lifestyle, but this one thing was similar, the tone of their conversations. As the couples talked together, almost always there was what Gottman calls, and I'm quoting Gottman now, a strong undercurrent of two basic ingredients, love and respect. These are the direct opposite of, and he says, furthermore, the antidote for contempt, contempt, which perhaps is the most common uh, our most corrosive force in, in marriage. And again, you know, this research, 20 years, that many couples, people that have been married that long, 20 to 40 years, and out of that research, the empirical, uh, empirical research of that was that love and respect are two unbelievable ingredients to make for happy marriages that keep marriages from becoming miserable. And I don't think that's accidental. It is simply a validation of what the Bible said hundreds and hundreds of years prior to this time. And so what I want to do in the next couple of moments is just really talk through this verse when this writer of the Bible says, I mean, I think great energy, said, husbands, you must love your wife. Wives, you must respect your husbands. So let's start with the ladies. Ladies go first, right? And let's talk about one of the greatest needs that um, a wife has, a lady has. Now, often when we face challenges in our marriage, it's for these reasons. A husband and a wife are quite different in many ways, including our needs. And uh, I, I would just say this, if you were to take, and if you have not done this, I would encourage you, if you're currently married, I would encourage you to do this. And you may have Hopefully you have, but if you haven't, I would do this. Sit down with one another and try to really ascertain as to what each other's needs really are. See, a lot of times what happens, and I see this all the time as a pastor and working with people in relationships, is a lot of times a husband thinks that the needs that he has, that those are the needs that she must have. So what does a husband often do? A husband often will take the needs that they know, feel, experience, and they will try to meet those needs in the life of their wife, and it is not even on their top ten list. 
So what you may want to do sometime is just say, hey, let's sit down, and I want you, and don't even try to go for 10. Don't even try to go for 7 or 5. Don't overwhelm yourself too early. Just what you may want to do is just say, here's what I want to do. I'm going to write down my top three needs, and I would like for you to do the same, and, and then let's just compare, and then let's commit ourselves to fulfilling those needs that each other has. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you what's going to happen like 99.99% of the time. What's going to happen if we just take the top three and, and you were to say, okay, on the count of five, we're going to turn these and we're going to show each other our needs. All right, one, two, three, boom. You know what you would find? You would find that your needs were not congruent, that the needs that she has as your wife are not even going to show up on your list and the needs that, you know, and vice versa. Because one of the primary needs, if not the primary need, that a wife needs is this need to be loved. But here's a problem. Here's a problem. world says, uh, you know, you just, you just look and you see it evidenced and, you know, you go back to our original parents, Adam and Eve, and you see this selfish streak that we have in us. And so a lot of times the focal point becomes this. I, I want to have my needs met. And that's where, again, a lot of unrealistic expectations come into marriage. And a lot, this is all about me. It sort of goes back to that selfish part of us. I want to have my needs met. I want her to fulfill my needs. If she will fulfill my needs, then I'm going to meet her needs. Rather than possessing this open-hearted attitude which says, my priority is going to be to meet the needs of my spouse. There are also occasions when we're not fully aware of what those needs are. And that's why I mentioned to you the value of, if you've never taught that through, is sitting down. And talking that because we make these faulty assumptions that what she needs is the same as what I need. And the vast, vast majority of the time, it is not true. And so a husband, a lot of times, is assuming their needs are the same as mine. So we attempt to meet needs that are not even near the top of their list. Now, again, it would be interesting. And to be quite honest, it would be quite shocking to a lot of you guys if you were to say to her, write down your top three, top five, top... And you'd look at that and you'd say, wow. Unbelievable. I, d I didn't even know that. I will tell you that if it is not in the top spot, it would be right there at it. And that is, again, her need to be loved. There'd be other needs there. It would be the need for communication. It would be the, the need for affection when other things aren't in mind, you know, like aff affectionate when there's a benefit, you know, there for the, for the man to just be affectionate when nothing else is in the part of the equation. And so th those are going to show up, I would imagine, probably in top five for most, for most ladies. But at the top, I'm just telling you, is going to be the need to feel love. A, a group of four to eight-year-olds were once asked that question, what, is, what does it mean to love? What does love mean? Four to eight-year-olds. And, and I'd like for you to hear some of their responses. I love what some of these kids said. What does love mean? Rebecca, age eight, she said this, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. She said, that's love. Carl, age five. I like this one. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne, and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> Don't try that in the service. Wait till afterwards. Emily, age eight. Love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mama and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. <laughs> Noel, age seven. 
I like this one. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it every day. I think Noel has had some experience with this one. Tommy, age six. Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after, even after they know each other so well. They still like each other. Lauren, age five. I know, poor thing, listen to this. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and she has to go out and buy new ones. Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars just come out of you. That's how you know. Here's some wisdom for you by an eight-year-old, Jessica. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. Husbands, you must, must love your wife. What the writer of Scripture says. And I like this definition, love. The guys are going to put it up on the screen. Love is not just saying, hey, I love you, just throwing that around tritely. Love is intentionally doing something caring or helpful for another person in Jesus' name, regardless of the cost or consequence to oneself. Look at that. That's a great, great definition. One of the best I think I've ever seen. Love is intentionally doing something caring or helpful for another person in Jesus' name, regardless of the cost or consequence to oneself. But here's the difficulty that most of us guys have. We know that we love, and we may even say it on a regular basis, but where we often are less engaged is when it comes to tangibly doing something that is helpful or caring. Ah, I know it. They know it. I know it. And No, it's beyond that. It's beyond that. It's not just as the definition says. It's doing something helpful something caring for another person, regardless of the cost or consequence, the investment that you have to make. Now, I've, I've been at pastoring for more than just a little while now, and so part of that is engaging your mind at what some of you fellows may be thinking. Some of you are thinking right now, well, you know, Pastor Jeff, you're saying this stuff so confidently if you only knew my wife, you'd be cutting me a little bit of slack right now. That's just an excuse. Still, it does not erase the fundamental mandate to love your wife. I'm not saying it's always easy, no more than it's always easy for her to respect you. I, I, I love this story. You may have heard it before. It's a story about a man who came home one day to a very cranky wife. That never happened to anybody here, but it happens to some guys. Arriving at 6.30 in the evening, 6.30 in the evening, he spent an entire, an entire hour trying to cheer her up, to change the nature. But no matter what he did for an hour, nothing at all worked. So finally, a little bit of exasperation, he said, let's start over. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to step out. And I'll step back in, and I'm going to pretend I'm just getting home. So I stepped outside, and when he opened the door, first thing she said was this, it's 7.30, and you're just now getting home from work? So sometimes my recommendation on that one, just go to bed. Just go to bed. Save it for another day. But the reality is, reality is, husbands, love your wives. And that's more than just saying, hey, love you. Doing things that are caring or helpful, 
regardless of the cost or consequence. It's a great statement by C.S. Lewis. You'll see it on the screen. He writes this, When you are behaving as as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you start behaving, if you start training yourself, as it were, to love somebody, you will presently. His notion of thought was, and I would not disagree, that you will presently treat them in the way. Not even necessarily if you're just saying, well, if you only knew my... No. Treat them as though they don't act that way. Treat them the way they need to be treated, the way they ought to be treated, even when it's not easy. And C.S. Lewis said, you will presently come to love them. Now, let me ask you a question, all right? We'll do a brief little time out here. Now, what is love anyhow? Is love an emotion or is love, you know, a choice? Is it like, and, and I'd use two words there. Is love, um, is it feeling slash emotion? Is that what it is, feeling slash emotion? Or is it a choice? And I would contend that it is both. In fact, many times uh, when you think about maybe even your current relationship, uh, one of the things that, that uh, you know, you first are smitten by is the emotion or the feeling. You feel attracted to this person. And it's just, you know, sort of that emotional tug that you feel. And it is the thing that prompts you to pursue the relationship. But, you know, that, that can only carry you so far. And the, the reality is, at some point, you've got to determine it is bigger and broader than just, I cannot limit it to just that, because it's got to be more than that. It's got to be a choice. In fact, let me say it this way. It is dangerous to give too much attention to only our feelings. I, I, let, me, let me say it this way. If you or I only do the things we feel like doing, how many of you know that's going to be a big mistake? Because there's a lot of things we don't feel like doing that we do anyhow because we know the antithesis of that could be disastrous. I mean, let's be honest. We, we don't around here try to, you know, pretend to be sanctimonious or spiritually above everybody else. It's just real. It's just transparent. So uh, let's be real and let's be transparent. How many of you are like this? You have days when you do not feel like praying. Let me see your hand, and I'll lift my hand. I have days I don't feel like praying, but I know I need to pray anyhow. I can't just dictate that by, by, my, by my emotion. Now, I know, I know nobody here, uh, this would be applicable to you, but I'll just ask the question to, to just, you know, for the purpose of raising the question. Have you ever had even one day in your, just one day, and again, you've got to use a great imagination. Have you ever had just one day in your life that you did not feel like going to work? How many of you have ever, let me see your hands. I'm going to put my hands up. You ever had a day? Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to call your boss. I'm not, you know, just, all right, you ever have a day? But what do you do? Hey, think about it in this regard. If you did not go to work, on the days you did not feel like going to work, you would not have to feel like going to work to that place ever again because you would not work there. By now they would have said, Jack, you're missing way too much work. You're out of here. But why do you go to work? Because you want to keep your job. It's not just going by our feelings or our emotions. How, how many of you do not necessarily get fired up about paying your bills? Let me see your hands on that one. It's not, I don't know anybody that just says, oh, man, I cannot wait to the end of the day. I stepped away from the camera, didn't I? Let me get back over here. 
I can't wait to get to the end of my day because as soon as I get home, I'm going to start paying bills because I'm passionate about paying bills. No, why do you pay your bills? Because you got to pay your bills, and you'll get into big trouble. Now, this one, you need to be honest, and I may, I may be seeking out counseling myself by Tuesday, but I'm just going to ask the question. Is there anybody here that you have some Sundays that you do not feel like going to church? Let me, let me just see your hands. Just let, okay. Keep it up. I'd like to see all you people in the next theater right after this service. We need to talk. I get that. There are days. Listen, Sunday, I'm telling you, I, Sunday is my favorite day of the week. But I, I hate to admit, admit this, but in the 10 years that we've all been here together, there have been some Sundays when I did not feel like being here, but I knew that something needed to happen after the worship was done. So I, I wanted to be here. We don't always do what we feel like doing in the moment. Sometimes you don't feel like apologizing to somebody. Sometimes you don't feel like eating healthy when you know you should eat healthy. You ever have days when you don't want to go to the gym, but you know you ought to go to the gym because you want to keep the temple of the Holy Spirit healthy, vibrant. Let's read these two verses together. Everybody, read them with me, all of us. Ephesians 5.25, and then we're going to move on and, and talk about the needs of a man. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Colossians 3.19, let's all read this one. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right, so what does the writer in the Bible say? Husbands, you get it now, right? Top need, top prominent need. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. All right, so take the second portion of that verse, and then it says, right in the Scripture says, and wives, you must respect your husband. Okay, ladies, I would imagine, all right, that for most of you, it's quite easy for you to resonate with the first part of verse 33, and you would agree that your need to be loved is a high priority. I just have to say that in a similar fashion is your husband's need to have your respect. I've quoted him a time or two already. Uh, Dr. Emerson Egrich, in his book, a great book, by the way, he said, I have had numerous men, I've had numerous men say to me, I would rather live with a wife who respected me but did not love me than live with a wife who loved me but did not respect me. Did you hear that? Now, ladies, I know when I, when I just read that statement that he made, some of you, this is what you heard. You heard the peanuts, car, wah, 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 wah. It was like a foreign language because you're like, that does not even make sense to me. Let me bring it into context. For you to say, for, or let me back up, for your husband to say to you, let's start there. For your husband to say something like this to you, I respect you, but I do not love you, that would be devastating for you to hear. Hey, I want you to know, honey, I respect you, but I, I don't love you. If you're, if you're a wife, that would wreck your world. But it would be equally inflicting for a wife to say to her husband, you know, you know I love you, but I don't respect you. It would invoke the same kind of Steam, pain. And here's where a lot of marriages can drift in some re really turbulent waters. When a husband or a wife starts using this against each other, 
And it's like you come to understand what your husband needs or, or what your wife needs. And you just go back to sort of that selfish mentality that we've all struggled with, that, again, humanity has struggled with since the days of Adam and Eve, when we may sit back. And this, this, and I've seen this happen so many times in marriages where it just gets in a negative cycle when a husband leans back and he's like, you know what? I'm not getting the kind of respect that I feel I deserve, so I'm not going to love her in the way that she ought to be loved. And she's over here, and she's saying, you know what? Until he loves me the way that I ought to be loved, where it's more than just words, it's more than just a passing statement, where I'm, you know, cared for and helped for, you know, helped. Uh, Until that happens, I'm not going to respect him. And I've seen this happen so many times. And honestly, if if it is not stopped, this is what can lead to a miserable marriage, where people just sort of nail it down, and it becomes a very negative cycle where he said, I'm not, I'm not going to love her the way I know she needs to be loved. He may understand it fundamentally, but I'm not going to do it because she's not respecting me yet. And, and she's like saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to respect. He, he doesn't love me the way I deserve to be loved, so why should I respect him? And I'm not going to budge until he budges. And she's, he's saying, I'm not going to budge until she makes a step forward. And, and they just get in this negative pattern. And if they don't get off that path, I'm just telling you, I've seen it way too many times. That's how you get to a miserable marriage. God bless the person who humbles themselves and says, doesn't really matter. She may not be treating me in very respectful ways right now, but I'm going to love her the way she ought to be loved. I'm going to love her the way the Bible says I ought to love her. And the wife who says, you know what? Gosh, it's so hard. I don't feel love to the degree that I would want to. But I've got to break this cycle. It's getting us nowhere. And I'm going to treat him with respect because I know that's what God would want me to do, even when it's not easy. And somebody breaks the cycle. And marriages basically function that way. They get in this negative, perpetuating, she didn't, he didn't, she did, he did, and they're reciprocated, and it's just negative. He did this, so I'm going to react, and I'm going to react to that, and react, and it's just negative, and nobody breaks the chain, or it just gets positive, where he just says, I'm going to keep loving. And she says, I'm just going to keep respecting. And it just gets healthier and better, not perfect, because I don't know of any perfect marriages. But that couple just year by year, year by year, they just keep moving forward through the good times, through the tough times. And they're just saying, hey, as long as we live, as long as we live, we'll grow old together. And that's the way the Bible would encourage it. I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, guys, guys could say, well, you know, cut me some slack there, Pastor Jeff. You don't know what it's like at my house. Some of you ladies might would say, man, it's just hard to respect him. It's just really, really hard to respect him. He's not as loving as he ought to be. And you may even say, because uh, I see this quite often, how, how can I respect him? He, he's not even a follower of Jesus. He is, so, uh, he is so the opposite of everything that is precious and dear to me. How can I respect that? But I want you to look at a verse, and then we're going to be done. Look at it here on the screen, 1 Peter 3, 1. To wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them, read this portion up into the comma with me, even if any of them do not believe the word, do not believe the word, look at the rest of it, 
They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And I can't tell you the number of times when I've seen that, where a man that was far, far, far from God, maybe didn't even have a lot of interest in God, wasn't like passionate about Jesus, didn't want to read the Bible, didn't want to pray, didn't want to go to church, but he could not deny the reality of the awesomeness and the beauty that Jesus brought to pass in the life of his wife. And he just looks at her and he just says, man, if God can do something like that, if God could, if God could change her like that, then, oh, man, that's something that I would be interested in. And so many times, an unbelieving husband, a husband far from God, has been one to Jesus, not because he showed up for church on any particular Sunday, but he's just seen the manifestation of the likeness of Jesus. So evidence in the life of his wife that he said, I think I'd like to know more about that. And that leads step by step to becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus himself. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? Husbands, you must love your wife. Wife, that's what the Bible says. You must respect your husband. And maybe you'd take it. Maybe it'd be a little homework for you this week to say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to find creative, imaginative ways where I'm going to show my wife through caring and helpful acts how much that I really do love her. And the wife says, I'm going to find some way somehow to just let him know how much I respect him as a man and as a husband and if applicable as a father. You you would be amazed. Because this is my hope for all of you, that you would avoid a miserable marriage and that God would bless you, bless your life, bless your future. You'd grow old together and love together and just see what God would do. So, Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for these moments together. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for your word. Now, I pray that every person here would embrace what they have heard today. Let us not just be merely hearers of your word, but let us be doers. And let us love and let us respect in the way that you want us to. Even when it's not easy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody say, amen. Love you, everybody. See you next week.